Hello again, welcome to the Chris Cast. I'm your host, Chris. Joining me by Zoom this week is Paul. Say hello, Paul. Hello. Well, if everybody remembers my comments last week about Facebook and how I wanted gone from them all together, we have found something better than Facebook Messenger in Zoom. And right off the bat, this was in Variety today. Billionaire Peter Thiel is exiting Facebook parents' board to focus on pro-Trump candidates. Oh, hell. So, when I said that I believed I was getting targeted because I was anti-Trump, this kind of reinforces what I was saying in that statement. That makes me sick to my stomach. Are you serious? Yeah. The article reads, Venture capitalist and right-wing booster Peter Thiel, after 17 years on the board of Facebook, now Meta Platforms, will step down as director of the internet giant. Thiel joined Meta's board in April 2005 after he had invested $500,000 in the then-fledgling Facebook startup. Thiel is leaving Meta in order to, quote, focus on influencing November's midterm elections, the New York Times reported, citing an anonymous source. Quote, Mr. Thiel sees the midterms as crucial to changing the direction of the country, this person said, and he is backing candidates who support the agenda of former president. Who shall remain nameless, because he was a piece of crap. I have no idea who they're talking about, so. So, yeah, kind of, kind of says everything that I've been saying, that if you speak out against Trump, Facebook will target you. And find any little reason they can. That is just wild. No. Remember, I got banned because I told somebody to go troll elsewhere. And how many times have you seen people refer to trolls or call somebody a troll or anything of that nature on Facebook and not get banned? years ago about during the campaign. Yeah, so... Yeah. Years ago, whenever it's the 2016 election. And we'll go ahead and get the other Trump-related news out of the way. This is from The Independent. Trump White House documents, including Kim Jong-un, quote, love letters, had to be retrieved from Mar-a-Lago. Records and documents that should not have been removed from the White House. I'm so sorry. Could you repeat that again? Well, I'll read the article here. It says, As the committee investigating the 6th January riot combs through records from the Trump administration, it has emerged that the National Archives recently recovered multiple boxes of official paperwork that Donald Trump had transported to his residence at Mar-a-Lago, including, quote, love letters between the former president and North Korean despot Kim Jong-un. According to a report from the Washington Post, the documents were recovered from his Florida encampment last month, 
raising further concerns about Trump's potential violation of the Presidential Records Act, legislation that requires administrations to preserve almost all documentation produced and circulated during a president's time in office. As multiple outlets have reported, the committee scrutinizing the Trump White House's behavior between the 2020 election and the 6th January insurrection is confronted by the difficult fact that the former president would often attempt to physically destroy documents that legally needed to be preserved, in the process obliging his staff to tape shards of paper back together as best they could. You know, the guy who claimed he was going to find her emails, and obviously never did, and said he was going to make her go to jail, and obviously never had that happen, is now found to have removed official documents from the White House. Yeah, but I, I, I don't. I wonder how many. If it's if it's just a couple boxes, or like six or eight boxes of stuff, or well, the article. How can he get it? How can he get away with that? The article says recovered multiple boxes of official paperwork. So I bet it's more than two or three. So I don't see how he can get away with that. How has he gotten away with everything? I mean, quite honestly. Seems like he would be scrutinized while he was moving out of the residency. You know, they what it is is, you know, the government moves them out, and the government moves them in. So they have movers that does all this stuff. So, and you know that they're looking at the stuff as they're leaving with it in their personal hands. So I just wonder how they smuggle this stuff out of the White House. That's the thing. How do they do it? Oh, probably all through the years. I mean, every weekend he was going to Mar-a-Lago to golf, so uh, take a box with you. It's not hard. And, yeah, I didn't think about him going there every weekend. And I did see on Twitter tonight, there was a meme that was made up by Occupy Democrats. So I don't know the validity of it, but it basically says... That what this story is proving is that Trump is no longer eligible for uh, for running for public office, and I can't remember how it was worded, but it was one of the the actual rules that they had, and they named the article that it was. So, as if they're going to probably enforce that. I mean, come on. I am all for them keeping him out of the running. But he always comes. He always like squeaks out of everything. But that's enough on Trump. We'll move on. I got some more new food items this week. What's that? Keebler. This is from Chewboom.com. Keebler introduces new Fudge Stripes Make a Wish Celebration Cake Cookies. And. The cookies will be retail price of $3.99 per 9.7 ounce pack. Keebler will donate $0.25 up to the $250,000 donation goal, which that I have a problem with. We'll donate one quarter up to the $250,000 donation goal. They should donate one quarter to a minimum of a $250,000 donation goal 
and whatever they keep making off of these cookies keep giving to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. It should not be capped at $250,000. Especially when they're charging $4 a pack. Well, they'd went, they don't have to do that at all. No, but if you're going to do it, do it. They look yummy. But, wow. And the fudge truck cookies are always really good. I've always enjoyed them a lot. but I won't have to try these. But I think they should keep donating past the $250,000 goal. Oh, hold on. I think I grabbed the wrong ones. Here's the Make-A-Wish ones. Yeah. So it says Make-A-Wish on the package. Yep. Okay. And in okay. addition to those, Keebler is debuting new Chips Deluxe Double Chocolate M&M's. Chocolate-based cookies baked with milk chocolate M&M's, adding double the chocolate for a new fun twist to the classic cookie. New Chips Deluxe Dipped Duo's Chocolate Fudge, a spin on the classic chocolate chip cookie with even more fudge. These Chips Deluxe cookies are dipped into classic Keebler fudge. And New Sandy's Cranberry and Almond, a mix of cranberries and crunchy almonds for a new twist on a classic favorite. Each three dollars and ninety nine cents suggested. Uh, I don't know about that last one. I've never liked the pecan sandies. Now, I'm not big on cranberries, so. My mama, she was, she loved those cookies. I would bring home a bag, honey. She'd there and chew up half of that bag. Well, it's easy to do. Yeah. But. But also, this one from Pillsbury, from FoodNetwork.com, Pillsbury Baking launches its first boxed donut mix. What? It's Pillsbury Funfetti Donut Mixes. Um, uh, there were three. Um, the article I pulled up only shows the chocolate cake donut mix. Let me let me see if I can pull up the other. Yeah, here's Funfetti donut mix. Vanilla cake donut mix. Unicorn vanilla cake donut mix was another one, and then. Funfetti cake donut mix. So there's the chocolate, the regular, and the unicorn vanilla. So, and the chocolate cake donut mix has candy bits in it and glaze. No. But now, for those who don't have the the cake pan to make a donut with, they do show on the box that you can make the donut holes. And I'm 
Well, it looks like it says well, makes, makes 12 donuts or and I can't it's too small to read I can't read how many of the donut bites it's saying but it looks 36 like 36 donut holes 12 large donuts or 36 donut holes containing the candies bits and stuff yeah they will range between $2.50 to $4.00 I found this on Yahoo Finance. Yeah. $2.28 at Walmart, according to foodnetwork.com. Well, another reason to get fat. Well, it's a good reason. Did you have any sure new food is. items that you found? or Food items? No, I haven't found any or seen anything. No. Well, I... I did see this article today. It's completely different. It's not food or anything. But it's something very beneficial to the environment. This is from AndroidHeadlines.com. Samsung is using repurposed discarded fishing nets in Galaxy S22. In other words, they are cleaning up the ocean and putting it into their product. Uh, well, it's the phone casing. Oh, so they're turning the fishnets into phone cases. According wow, to, cool. According to Samsung, discarded fishing nets are one of the biggest threats to ocean life. While people usually see water bottles and grocery bags as ocean-bound plastics, more than 640,000 tons of fishing nets reportedly end up in the big water bodies every year. These nets trap and entangle marine life, damage coral reefs, affect natural habitats, and even find their way into our food and water sources. The South Korean behemoth is now repurposing these discarded fishing nets as part of its Galaxy for the Planet journey. It has developed a new material using these abandoned plastic nets. Samsung plans to use this material in its entire product lineup in the future. The journey will begin with the Galaxy S22, Galaxy S22 Plus, and Galaxy S22 Ultra. The new devices go on go official on February 9th, 2022. Well, good for Samsung. Now, if the others will follow their lead and start cleaning up the oceans and re repurposing the plastics out there. Anytime what you have is a Samsung phone or is it LG? No, I have a Google now. I had LG until LG quit making phones. So, oh, I didn't realize they stopped making phones. Yeah. So I, I could not get another LG, so I had to go with Samsung. Or not with Samsung, but with Google. Cause, so you have a Google, do you have a Google Pixel? Yeah, I think it's a Google Pixel 9. But it's, it was when I went to upgrade, because I had to get a new phone for the 5G thing. It was free, so... I wasn't going to argue with that. Well, I, oh, I hear that the Google Pixel phone takes a really good picture. Oh, it does. Because I can zoom in and get a clear shot. Cool. And, and now comes the time where we're going to fall to Democrat on the show. This is from Newsweek. 
Stacey Abrams goes on offensive after GOP blasts maskless school photo op. Stacey Abrams on Sunday hit back against political opponents following criticism of a photo op in which she appeared maskless with a group of masked school kids. Cannot forgive her for going without a mask in front of these people, whether she knew they were vaccinated or not. She is not normally around them. She could have passed something to them. They could have passed something to her. It was not a good idea. However, the Republicans that are attacking her because she went maskless in this photo are also the ones who refuse to wear a mask. So, they don't have a right to complain. But I will say... She should never have taken the photo without a mask. She should not have been there without a mask. We all have seen how masks do help, even though people want to deny that fact. And I cannot forgive her for doing that. Yeah. Yeah, wear your mask, people. I can't. I, I saw where the cases have come down like some areas of the country 70% in the past week. I thought, that's freaking amazing. Yeah. That that's coming down that quickly. Well, people aren't doing their holiday gatherings now, so... But... Well, that's okay. Valentine's Day is just on Monday. But it's still... People are most definitely still getting it. We have two units at my hospital that are under quarantine now. Because of COVID. When you say you, when you say units, that's how many rooms is that? We have twenty four beds on a unit. Gravy? Are you serious? You know, it's not necessarily all of them are filled, but a unit has twenty four beds. Wow. So, and two are currently under quarantine. And shall we go on to Joe Rogan now? You know, I really don't know much about that. I mean, I saw where a bunch of people were either supporting him or bitching about him on Twitter. I saw something about The Rock and Joe Rogan. Okay. Something about them going Here, back and forth on Twitter. I don't know what the whole thing is. Explain it to me. Here's the history. Joe Rogan has pushed... Ivermectin as a treatment for COVID. He has spread all kinds of misinformation and outright lies about COVID. Neil Young asked to have his music removed if they were going to keep the Joe Rogan podcast on Spotify. That was followed by Joni Mitchell and Niels Lofgren. And I know some people are pulling their podcasts down now. And, like, Patricia Arquette, I think, was one who had a podcast. It was either her or Rosanna. One of them had a podcast that they wanted removed. Um, Others are removing their stuff. And people were saying, this is censorship. And I'm like, no, it's really not. Removing him from the service because he's spreading misinformation and lies is not censorship. It's protecting the facts. And, I mean, 
people kept saying that Idiocracy is a documentary, but if we keep supporting people like Joe Rogan, it, Idiocracy will be a documentary because... People will be too stupid to think for themselves and come up with actual facts so they believe anything this guy tells them. And yeah. then over the weekend... Well, that's what I was saying. Has any watched Fox News? Well, but over the weekend, Spotify started quietly removing at random over 110 episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast. None of them were removed for COVID misinformation, and the last I saw, I don't know if it's changed since then, but Spotify would not state why they were removing those episodes. But then, the last couple of days, the news has come out of Joe Rogan's use of the N-word continuously, both on the podcast and outside of the podcast. And... The Rock's deal was, at first, he defended Joe Rogan and then found out about Joe Rogan's use of the N-word and was like, oh, wait a minute, that's not right. And I was like, why was it okay for him to spread lies and misinformation about COVID, but now it's bad because he used the N-word? You know, I'm not, I'm not in any way, shape, or form promoting the use of the N-word because I will not use it. It is one word that will never come out of my lips. But... Is it any more damaging than lies and misinformation about COVID are? Yeah. You can can weigh it and, and figure it out for yourselves, but both of them are very damaging things. And it makes The Rock look bad that he defended this piece of crap for spreading lies, but then all of a sudden... Because he uses a certain word, now it's a problem. Yeah, I saw where there was a bunch of back and forth between him and Joe Rogan on Twitter. I mean, it was like, and then I see now they got the tweets got deleted, and the the Rock ended up ultimately apologizing to Joe Rogan for the. I guess he uses some kind of language on Twitter, attacking him, and. Um, Anyways, uh, The Rock kind of took the high ground at that point, so. Well, regardless, there is no defense of Joe Rogan that will work. And who is he, by the way? I've never heard of him until this. He was one of the background actors on a sitcom, I think it was News Radio... And then he was the host of Fear Factor, and now he's got a podcast where he spreads all kinds of lies and hate. Also, he's a B a B actor. Pretty much. He was yeah. never going to be a major Hollywood star. Yeah. And I'm looking through this article. I don't see anything about which show he was on. I know he was the host of Fear Factor, which was a crappy television reality show. Fear Factors? I don't know if you've ever watched that. When they start pouring the spiders in on someone, I'm dying. I'm just like, ah, I can't do it. 
See, I was never a big fan. I've I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I've never sat down and watched a full episode or attempted it's to watch a full episode. Completely, completely horrifying. They will pull a pour a bucket of vipers on top of you. But, but that's it for Joe Rogan. I'm I'm not giving him any more time than that. But we'll move on. Variety has another article here. Foo Fighters free concert to live stream after Super Bowl on Facebook, Instagram, and in VR. So, you know, I won't be watching it because I don't use Facebook anymore and in Instagram owned by the same group. And, uh, uh, Facebook owns Instagram. So, yeah, I... I'm looking at I look at that Joe Rogan's I am I am whatever it is. Uh, apparently he played on Zookeeper News Radio. Let's see here. The news Radio kid, was uh, the one. Another movie called Here, and both of them is with um, Kevin James. Zookeeper. Both of those movies are with Kevin James. So I guess Kevin James was like him. Yeah. Or did. Or did. This, this is happening, this is not happening. Let's see, Joe Rogan Show, Joe Rogan Show, The Man Show. Um, uh, that's basically it. Vegas, something Venus Vegas. And it looks like he was on an episode of Just Shoot Me. Oh, and also, oh my God, you're going to die here. He was on... Um, it's a very merry Muppet Christmas movie. Well, that was because he was hosting Fear Factor, and that there was a segment that took place on Fear Factor. Oh, okay. So that's all it was. But the the Foo Fighters I concert him now uh, for Fear Factor, that dark Harry's got yeah, what a cheesy grin. Okay, go ahead. The Foo Fighters concert is scheduled to begin at 8 o'clock Pacific on February 13th or immediately following the conclusion of the Super Bowl. It will be free to access with no ads or brand sponsorships. So it'll be on television? No, it will be on Facebook, Instagram, or VR. And I'm not sure what the VR... Here it is. In, in addition to streaming on Facebook and Instagram... Meta will present the performance by the Rock and Roll Hall of Famers in a 180-degree virtual reality concert in Horizon Venues, the company's social VR app. The Foo Fighters? Foo Fighters. Yeah, I won't be watching. And, you know, that's something else I was talking about the other day, because, you know, we mentioned the, the Duran Duran, for the first time ever, was nominated for the Hall of Fame. How were they overlooked before the Foo Fighters? I'm not taking anything away from the know. Foo Fighters, but of the two bands, Duran Duran was easily the more successful of the two. Yeah, let's look that up. I mean, Duran Duran was the first artist, and for a long, long time, the only artist to record a song for a Bond film that went to number one. Because really? 
The View to a Kill was the first Bond theme to go to number one, and it took about 20 years or so before another Bond theme would go to number one. Because I think Sam Smith was the next one to go to number one with the Bond theme. Madonna didn't even get there with her Bond theme. Song. Yeah, but she did not go to number one with it. According to Duran Duran was the first and for a long time only act to hit number one with a Bond theme. But moving on from Deadline... Oppenheimer. Dane DeHaan joins Christopher Nolan's historical drama for Universal. Dane DeHaan has signed on to star alongside Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon, Rami Malek, Benny Safdie, and Josh Hartnett in Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer for Universal Pictures. Deadline has confirmed. Nolan's latest is based on the Pulitzer Prize winning book American Prometheus, the Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by K. Bird and the late Martin J. Sherwin. Murphy stars as the theoretical physicist of the same name whose work on the Manhattan Project led to the invention of the atomic bomb. Details as far as the character DeHaan has, is playing have not been disclosed. And World War II era film, I am definitely in. Christopher Nolan has stumbled in the last few films that he's done, but I still enjoy his work fantastic cast so this is one that I will be wanting to watch what about you are you into any of that yes well that's a for some strange reason no I'm looking at the net worth of Duran Duran for some strange reason they're not putting them as a collective as a group they're doing them individual and I don't understand that um like one member is worth sixty million, another member is worth thirty million. Then here's another member, like Simon Lebon, he's worth sixty million. And then there's a fourth member worth thirty million. No, sixty million, sixty million, thirty million, sixty million. So I don't get it. Why don't they do them collectively? Uh, couldn't tell you. Maybe because That's just the. Weird. The band's not an entity. It's a group. Because I don't know if the Rolling Stones' net worth would be... Because Mick Jagger's net worth's not going to be the same as, say... Uh, was it Keith Moon was one of them? I know there yeah. was... I know there was Keith Richards, but there was somebody, Moon, that was in there. And... So, that's probably why is the group is not worth, but the individuals are. And each of them have a different net worth. We're the Foo Fighters. They're but, saying Foo Fighters collectively as a band is worth $50 million. Yeah. But for some reason, Duran Duran was done separately. I couldn't tell you then. I don't get that. But, mm. on the Duran Duran front, yeah, it should still be on there for two more weeks. If you haven't seen it, they were on Austin City Limits on PBS. 
And if you go to the PBS app, you can still see their performance. It was a one-hour show. So I watched it earlier today. It was a pretty good show. I used to stay awake really late at night on Saturday night. Me and my mom would lay awake real early in the morning and watch Austin City Limits because I think it came on on PBS like at 11 or 11.30 at night or something like that. And we'd stay up and watch whoever it was is going to be performing that weekend. So. Oh, yeah, that was very uh, late. A whole 12.30, 1 o'clock when you went off of it. Yeah, but I was a kid. I was a kid. I wasn't. I was like a kid, and I'd watch it with my mom. Now, see, when I was a kid, we stayed up late on Saturday, night, on Saturday nights and would watch either Saturday Night Live or Saturday Night's main event. See, I didn't get into Saturday Night Live until I was in my, my early teens. Oh, I you guess. missed the best stuff. Because the church lady, oh. hands down. I, want, I remember seeing church chat. Well, that was like 86 when church lady started. I think I, my friend Greg, he would, I'm allowed to say his name. Uh, my friend Greg, he would actually record the Saturday Night Lives on his VHS tape thingy VCR and he'd have me over and he he's one of each, I guess from his tapes that he recorded um, Saturday Night Live and he would uh, introduce me to some of those characters so yeah Church Lady mm, isn't that special who could it be I just can't think Well, one of the best episodes of Church Chat, hands down, is the one where Jan Hooks and Phil Hartman played Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Easily one of the best episodes of Church Chat. And then, of course, another memorable one was the, the one with Joe Montana and Walter Payton. And Joe Montana grabbed the church lady's butt. And there was the one with um, Danny DeVito, and I think Willie Nelson was in that one. And they and Church Lady and Willie Nelson saying, "You don't bring me flowers." And there was the episode with Sean Penn, where um, Church Lady showed a clip of the "Open Your Heart" video from Madonna, and then. Church Lady started bad-mouthing Madonna, and Sean Penn ended up punching the Church Lady, and then got into a fight with the other guest, and Church Lady ended up hitting Sean Penn over the head with a vase of flowers, and then ended up knocking him out with a, with a punch. So, some really good stuff on the church chat. I know some of them are still on YouTube. Me. We were talking about the people we, we just mentioned the PTL just a minute ago. Um, there's something, there's some kind of decision that's supposed to come down in Fort Mill today about the old, um, you ever, have you been to Heritage USA since no. it closed? It's still there. You can go down and visit it and it's just spooky to go see it because all the buildings are still there. The hotel, the hotel was used. The hotel used to be the tallest skyscraper in South Carolina. 
still want to take me on at the PTO. All of that's still there. And you can go see it and walk Main Street USA right there in Heritage USA. Um, and there was supposed to be some kind of a decision brought down uh, uh, Fort Mill about what was going to happen to Heritage USA. So um, while you're continuing to talk, let's see if I can find that article. Uh, I've got a few quick ones. There's from Variety, the reports today, Eddie Izzard to star in Dr. Jekyll, Joe Stevenson to direct. And I don't know if this is going to be part of the Universal Monsters reboot that they're doing, but Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is one that I will support a new theatrical version of, because I don't remember the last time that story has been done in the United States. Now, I know Britain has done it, and they did one that was called Jekyll that I enjoyed quite a bit, but I don't remember anything in the U.S. in decades, honestly. So, kind of looking forward to that. An odd one, and I don't know how well it's going to come across. From Deadline, Madam Web. Dakota Johnson tapped to play first female superhero star in Sony Pictures' universe of Marvel characters. Madam Web is a complicated character. The only thing that I really know of her from is the Spider-Man animated series. And she was not like a true lead character potential in that. So I don't know why this is going to be the first female they choose to do in the Spider-Man universe. Especially when they could do the Black Cat. Because the Black Cat easily would be a much better sell than Madam Web. So we'll have to see how this one does, but I just I don't know that it's a good choice. Also from Deadline, this announcement that the CW has ordered pilots and series. And definitely ordered to pilot or Gotham Knights that we mentioned the other week. The Winchesters, the Supernatural prequel, is officially ordered to pilot. Shut up. Walker Independence is officially ordered to pilot. The Powerpuff Girls, Powerpuff, is being re-piloted. So apparently the original pilot they filmed for the Powerpuff Girls did not work out and so now they're working on a new version and I'd still I just don't see myself watching Powerpuff and also Zorro has already received a six script order from the CW this time Zorro will be a female says, a young Latinx woman seeking vengeance for her father's murder joins a secret society and adopts the outlaw persona of Zorro. So, we shall see how much of those go to series. As much as I want to see Gotham Knights done, I really want to see something besides 
the Bat Family done, and I keep saying this over and over and over, and DC and Warner Brothers keep doing the Bat Family over and over and over. I'm hoping Justice U gets picked up oh, wow. to series, because I love David Ramsey as John Diggle. I want to see him as the Green Lantern on the series, and that's one that I definitely am looking forward to. And it's not a Bat Family, necessarily, depending on who they choose to join him in the ranks of Justice U. But it's supposed to be younger heroes that he's training, the way I understand it. So, very much hoping Justice U gets picked up. From the Hollywood Reporter, then that 90s show cast has been revealed. And of the names, I knew nobody. The only ones I knew were the ones returning. And that, of course, are Kurtwood Smith and Deborah Jo Rupp as Red and Kitty. The new teens are Ashley Ofterhide as Gwen. She was on Emergence. Uh, Callie Haverda as Leah Foreman. From, she was in The Lost Husband. Mace Coronel as Jay. He was in Colin in Black and White. Maxwell A.C. Donovan as Nate. Was in Gabby Duran and The Unsittables. Rain Doy was in Barb and Star Go to Visit Del Mar. Or Go to Vista Del Mar. As he'll be playing Ozzy on the series. And Sam Morlos, who has no credit, as Nikki. N-I-K-K-I, so I'm guessing it's a female. What was the name of the show again? That 90s show. It's the sequel series to that 70s show. And Red and Kitty are taking care of Donna and um, Foreman's child, their daughter. So they come back on the show? I don't know. Red and Kitty are definitely on there, and it will be in their house from what I can gather. What happened to the 80s? Well, they've skipped it because it's the kids of their kids. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, I'm going to give it a try because I loved that 70s show. Oh, I love that 70s show, and it's got magic to it. I just don't see them carrying it in into the 90s. I mean, And really? if you recall, they did that 80s show with a completely different cast, and it absolutely did not work. I went back and tried to watch some of them not too long ago. It was either on YouTube or streaming somewhere, I can't remember. And I still was not impressed with that 80s show. So... I got news for you that you'll be thrilled to hear. This is from Slashton. Well, no. There is something with Michael Jackson. I didn't pull it up. It was the documentary has been, I believe, purchased for production by Lionsgate, if I'm not mistaken. But this one from SlashFilm.com. New Transformers Sleep Story premieres on Calm. Because what are Michael Bay's Transformers films if not peaceful and soothing? But basically, 
It is a bedtime story read by Peter Cullen, the voice of Optimus Prime, and it will be a Transformers story. I love me some Transformers. I love the originals. The, the films... The films have been extremely disappointing except for Bumblebee. Bumblebee was fantastic. The other Transformers films I have been disappointing. one I haven't seen is, about, is Bumblebee. I haven't seen that one. Bumblebee you should watch, but the others, not not impressed at all. And, of course, after the Black Widow fiasco with Disney+, Plus, Variety is now reporting Village Roadshow sues Warner Brothers over Matrix Resurrections release on HBO Max. You know, y'all make billions of dollars with movies. And you're going to complain that in a pandemic, a company put this stuff on their subscription service to try and drive membership when theaters weren't doing so well. And with the exception... How much did the, ma- the Matrix end up making? I think it ended up making over $100 million. The film has grossed just $148 million at the box office to date, a fraction of the gross reaped by the three earlier films. The suit accuses Warner Brothers of deliberately harming the film's box office to prop up HBO Max at the expense of the future viability of the franchise. But Warner Brothers made the call when Wonder Woman 84 was put on to HBO Max that for the rest of the year, films would go day and date theaters and HBO Max and I said when that happened it was only going to be for this year after this year you know they're going to go back to the theaters and of course the announcement came that now there is a 45 day minimum window from theater to HBO Max so common sense was telling you what these things were going to turn out to be but now they want to look petty and sue over lost profits during a pandemic. When, honestly, The Matrix Resurrections, what I saw, was not reviewed well. And probably would not have done all that great at the box office anyways in the pandemic when word of mouth got out that it wasn't as good. So... Did you find the PTL story yet? No, I can't find it. Yeah. It was on, uh, let me look at WSOC's. I looked at, I've looked everywhere. Let's see here. Maybe it's on WSOC. Let's see. Heritage USA. My last story before we get to the passings, I'll go ahead and talk about it. Tomorrow are the Oscar nominations. If you would like to get up early and watch them, 
They start at 8.18 a.m. Eastern, 5.18 a.m. Pacific. With the second, and that will be the actor in a supporting role, actress in a supporting role, animated short film, costume design, live action short film, music, original score, sound, writing adapted screenplay, and writing original screenplay. At 8.31 a.m., 5.31 a.m. Pacific, the second batch, actor in a leading role, actress in a leading role, animated feature film, best picture, cinematography, directing, documentary feature, documentary short subject, film editing, International feature film, makeup and hairstyling, music original song, production design, and visual effects will be announced. If you so choose to watch them, you can find the live stream at the Academy's websites and digital platforms including Oscar.com, Oscars.org, and its Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook pages. Additionally, you can catch the announcement via satellite feed and local broadcasters, or you can watch right here on EW.com at the video below. And all this article was from Entertainment Weekly. The announcers of the nominees, Tracy Ellis Ross, the daughter of Diana Ross, and how can you not love him, Leslie Jordan. They will be doing the nominations, and I can see Leslie Jordan being a lot of fun doing those nomination announcements. Oh, he'll be fun. I found it. It's about um, it's about that tower. They call it the Heritage Tower Project, um, which is that tall, very big um, hotel that's there on Heritage USA's property. Is that um, the one the guy locked himself in? Is that the one the guy locked himself in? It's owned by Morningstar uh, Ministries now, and it's um, fallen into disrepair, in which Morningstar keeps saying that they're going to be redoing it and all this other stuff. So now um, the city of Fort Mill is suing Morningstar, telling them they need to bring it down because it's a actual hazard. Um, so you and um, Lamar need to put in your GPS one day and just type in Heritage USA and go there I'm and not interested enough I think it's pretty cool to see it I mean knowing it was there on that on a world stage that place is on a world stage it's yeah but cool they were crooks and Can't read your mind, Paul. Let's see, com- casino jackpot. Oh where yeah, the guy the, walked away from it. They there was a, it was a malfunction or something, and they didn't know they won. And didn't know they won. And um, let's see, man tracked down after casino uh, after leaving casino without the two hundred twenty nine thousand dollar jackpot. It's amazing uh, um, how they tracked him down. They did videos from um, 
of him entering in, and they will watch the street videos of him going to other places. Then they pull up the video cam cameras of the other places, and they figure out where he went shopping at and what time he bought something at this such and such store. So then they brought up the internal video of that of see which which what time his transaction was done. So then they brought up the time of the transaction of what the name of the card was. That's how they found him, on the name of the card, on the name of his Visa card. Is that not wild how they tracked him down doing that? At least they did. Yeah. I mean, they, the hotel and casino could have... dollars to figure out who won the 200000 I mean, they, they could have pocketed that money themselves and not said a word, but they actually tracked him down, so... Why can't that have been me? But, you know, I didn't go to Vegas, though. That's why. You've actually got to go there to win. Yeah, I wouldn't have that kind of dumb luck, though. But that brings us to our passings this week. I've only got two that I came across. First up from Deadline, Seal Johnson, whose 1967 single Different Strokes has been frequently sampled by some of hip-hop's top artists, has died at age 85. No cause of death was given. Said the song would eventually be sampled by Public Enemy, Wu-Tang Clan, Eric B. and Rakim, Jay-Z and Kanye West, the De La Soul, among others. Who sampled sites over 300 songs that use portions of Johnson's cut? 300 songs have sampled wow. his different strokes. And if you're not familiar with the song, I was not. You can go to YouTube. This article from Deadline actually has it embedded in the article. It's Sill Johnson's Different Strokes. Sill Johnson, S-Y-L Johnson. Well, I got it queued up on YouTube. You want me to start playing it? No, because I don't have rights permission, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> and then, finally, from The Hollywood Reporter, Robert Blalack... Oscar-winning visual effects artist on Star Wars, dies at 73. The Industrial Light and Magic co-founder also received an Emmy for his work on the day after, then the highest-rated TV movie in history. Blalak died Wednesday of cancer at his home in Paris. His wife, writer Caroline Sharon Blalak, told The Hollywood Reporter. And... You know, you can say what you will about Star Wars. I know there's people that are fans and people that are not fans. But Star Wars did help push special effects. And this guy was very instrumental in that. So, just something to think about. There's people behind the scenes that, because of his work, we're getting some of the work we're getting today. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid going to see Star Wars. Um, what is it? The very first one to come out? Star Wars A New Hope. A New Hope? Yeah, I was five years old. And I do remember seeing that. You were older than five. No, it came out in 1977. I thought you were born before 72. came out in 1977. I was born in 72. Well, I know we went to the drive-in and saw Star Wars... When I was a little bitty kid. Yeah, I remember seeing it. I remember I was so excited to see it. And that metal speak 
speaker got put on your window. Yep. <laughs> Back in the days before it was radio broadcast to you. Yeah. So, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's, it, this article also says, Blaylatch also shared an Emmy for his VFX work on the day after the 1983 ABC telefilm about nuclear war between the U.S. and Soviet Union that drew 100 million viewers and was the highest rated TV movie in history at that time. So, you look at his work, Star Wars and The Day After. Two extremely famous, successful, and instrumental pieces of film in the history of film. You want to know something else interesting about Star Wars? What? The same director, also the one who directed all the music for the Harry Potter films. John Williams? Yep, he did all the Harry Potter movies. That'd be composer, not director. Well, you know what I mean. And he also did Indiana Jones music. Uh, He did... Superman? um, All them big blockbuster films that had the live music with it, he did them. He, He did he did that. So. He, oh, he did Jurassic Park. Their music. Yep. I think we all know this, Paul. Anyway, you know what? Kiss my ass, Chris. Kiss my grits. Kiss my grits. But anyways, that's where we will end this part. We will be back. We, we decided to give tribute to Sidney Poitier this week. Partly for Black History Month and partly because... We had other things when it was the passing of Sidney Poitier, so we figured February would be a great time to honor him. So I chose Paris Blues, Paul chose Mandela and the Clerk, and we'll be back with those reviews in just a moment. Welcome back. First up, let's go to Box Office Mojo and get the top 10 films of the weekend. Down from 9 to 10, Licorice Pizza. After 11 weeks in release, almost 12 and 3 quarter million dollars. Down from 6 to 9, the 355, almost 700,000 in its fifth week for over 14 million total. Down from 7 to 8, American Underdog. Three quarters of a million. Seven week total twenty five million eight hundred sixty three thousand four hundred seventeen dollars. Down from four to seven with just over a million in its third week. Redeeming love total is just over eight million dollars now. Down from five to six, the Kingsman, one and a quarter million in its seventh week for nearly thirty six million dollars so far in release. Sing two comes in down from three to five. Seventh week on the countdown, four week for four million dollars this weekend for a gross of over one hundred thirty nine and a half million dollars so far, dropping from two to four in its fourth week. Scream, four four and three quarter million dollars, four week total, sixty eight million nine hundred sixty two thousand five hundred and ninety six dollars. It has now grossed over $120 million worldwide. A definite bona fide hit. And of course, I tagged Paul in the article, Scream 6 has been officially greenlit. Hell yeah! Down from 1 to 3, Spider-Man No Way Home. 
out of eight weeks, it spent seven weeks at number one. Nine and a half million dollars, grand total to date, $748,858,932. Debuting at number two, Moonfall, $9,868,997 in its first week. And the big surprise, at number one in its first week in release, Jackass Forever. $23,154,388. I did not think Jackass would have that kind of clout. And it beat... That, that shows there's no account for taste. Well, there, it is comedy, so... It, it's stupid comedy. Come on, it's just some, stupid. Some of it's really funny, some of it's stupid. It's... I can't even. I can, I've never watched one from front to back. Oh, I have. I've watched all the movies prior to this one. I haven't, because it's stupid. And speaking of things returning, there was a GM ad on Twitter tonight that I saw talking about evil returning on February thirteenth. It was. Evil to show? No. Frau Farbissina, Scott Evil, and Dr. Evil. And I can't remember what Rob Lowe's character was. But Mike Myers, Seth Green, and Rob Lowe, as well as the original actress who played Frau Farbissina, are returning to, I guess, a Super Bowl ad. I don't get it. What I'm so sorry. Did you I'm not watch Austin Powers? Yeah. Dr. Evil? Oh, Dr. Evil. His okay. son, Scott? Yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. Dr. Evil, yeah. Rob Lowe was number two. That's who his character was. He was young Miss number two. Okay, yeah, I, I remember seeing that now. And, you know, they got to do something because Austin Powers and Goldmember left such a bad taste in the mouth that they need to do something to improve it. Did you really have to say that? Yeah, because Austin, Austin Powers, <laughs> Austin Powers and Goldmember was terrible. You know the gold. Never mind. You don't get the pun you just said. Anyway, but the just throw me on the floor, Chris. I'm I'm trying to plug in because it's not warning me that I'm running out of energy here. So. I went tumbling onto the floor. You didn't tumble onto the floor. You tumbled into my hands. Aw, he caught me. Yeah, I won't make that mistake again. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sad about uh, Screen 6. Shoot ya! And we just talked about it last week, and the very next day after we recorded, there was the announcement... And you know what else? Last week we talked about Facebook and how I was leaving them. The very next day, Facebook lost one-fourth of its value. Did you see that? Yeah, uh, let's see here. 200 some billion dollars, and then also, what you call it, lost $29 billion in one day. Now, I'm not saying 
that I have a lot of clout. But it's awfully funny that after I badmouth Facebook, they lose a fourth of their value. And after you mentioned the Scream sequel and we discussed it, the Scream sequel gets announced the very next day. That is so cool. So there you go. We're on the forefront of everything right here, people. Should be tuning in, listening to us, you'll get the information. And unlike Joe Rogan, we'll give you facts and we'll cite sources. Because that's one thing (laughs) I've always done, is cite sources on everything I say. Never take the credit for somebody else's work. And with that, we'll move into our tribute to Sidney Poitier. First up, we're going to go with Paris Blues, which was my choice. Um, IMDb ranks it at 6.8 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter has it 67%. The audience score is 68%. And Letterboxd has it 3.5 out of 5. I chose this one because of the cast. Five names was all it took. I was looking for a Sidney Poitier film. And I found this one that starred Paul Newman, who, I mean, let's face it, he's a legend. His wife, I don't know if they were married at the time, Joanne Woodward, Diane Carroll, and Satchmo himself, Louis Armstrong. I thought with that cast, this has to be a great film. It wasn't, unfortunately. It was a romance. I'm so glad you said it. It was a romance, and it was not a very believable story. The The plot is that Joanne Woodward and Diane Carroll are on vacation to Paris for two weeks, and in that two weeks they meet Paul Newman and Sidney Poitier and start romances as if they're going to go anywhere because the two women live in the States, the two men live in Paris... The two women are going back to the States at the end of two weeks. It just That was a hard pill to swallow as far as that storyline. Like, have them living somewhere else in France, maybe. Or, like, England or just across the Channel. But the United States, it just... I mean, it did the, the dialogue between Diane Carroll and Sidney Poitier talking about the race relations in the United States made for some very interesting historical moments that you can see how they still play out today. So for that, it's worth watching. But, like I said, it's it's not a believable story. The the script just is not that great. The acting's good. I mean, every one of them did a fine job acting. And Satchmo blowing the trumpet even though he wasn't blowing the trumpet. Like, they they had up close on his face, and you could tell he was puffing the cheeks like he would, but he wasn't actually blowing. No, Um, he's puffing them cheeks, those cheeks are like this. But, I will say, in everybody's defense in this film, even though they were not playing their instruments, they were actually making like they were playing their instruments. In other words, Sidney Poitier was pressing the keys on the saxophone. Satchmo was hitting the valves on the trumpet. 
the Paul Newman was sliding the trombone in different positions. He, they actually made it look like they were playing something. So kudos to them for that because you don't always see that in acting. You see them, like, think of the Lost Boys. We love the Lost Boys. But the guy just holds on to his sax, doesn't move his fingers at all. Yeah. So you get that a lot of times in film and TV. And in this film, they actually mimed playing an instrument. So you got to give them credit to that. But like I said, it's I was expecting a lot more with these caliber actors. And it just, it kind of fell flat for me. What did you think, Paul? This morning when I was doing some cleaning and stuff, so I put my AirPods in, turned on my iPhone, and started playing it. Well, the music kept playing, music kept playing, then it went to dead silence, music started playing again, I would turn and look at the screen, like, what's going on here? Music kept playing, and I'm like, okay, I turned like the screen to see... Okay, there's people on the screen. Music kept playing. It was four minutes and 45 seconds into the movie before one person spoke one word. I was like, what? Who does this? So, anyway. And then it starts off with them fussing. I was like, oh, God. I don't like people fussing like this. But, anyways... It was okay. I liked, I don't know where it was filmed. Um, Does it say where it was filmed at? Well, I'm not. I imagine it's probably Holly. Do I? I'm not on that. I I think parts of it were filmed in France, but I was looking at the trivia right off, and it says, very first thing, Paul Newman was coached in playing the trombone by Billy Byers, while the playing for Newman on the soundtrack was done by Murray McEachum. Sidney Poitier's tenor sax playing was done by Paul Gonsalves. The soundtrack was recorded May 1st through 3rd, 1961 at Reeves Reeves Sound Studios in New York City. And the second one is also of note because they do mention that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward were married while filming this in in the trivia. But it says, It was during the filming of this movie that Joanne Woodward became pregnant with Melissa Newman who was born the day the film opened in the U.S. So she was conceived during the filming and born the day of the film release. That's a little strange. But it's, it's kind of a cool little piece of history for her. It is. I mean, let alone the fact that her parents are Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. But the fact that she was conceived during the filming of the film that opened the day she was born. cinematography of it was pretty it's filmed in black and white of course but um and I didn't realize how handsome a man Paul Paul Newman was oh he was definitely considered one of the best looking men in Hollywood see I've never seen him act in anything I just you know I knew who he was and I knew he's an actor and I knew he has a popcorn line but um that's it I've never seen him act in anything. This is my first time. Not unless there was something he was acting in that I didn't know anything about it. I didn't catch it. But knowingly, no, knowingly, he was in it. 
he's a very good looking guy and he he did a really good job so but no he was about all i want to say you've probably seen him and stuff did you not see the road to perdition no did there was um what was it the where the money is where he was the old guy that they were getting him out of the old folks home and robbing the bank I need to watch Empire uh, Falls. I've not watched it, but I've always wanted to. Um, Message in a Bottle. Did you not watch that? No. Uh, let's see. The Color of Money with Tom Cruise, which was the sequel to The Hustler. No. Um, Absence of Malice with Sally Field. And now I'm getting into stuff no. that I know you wouldn't have seen, but The Towering Inferno. Uh, no. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. No. Cool Hand Luke. No. Alfred Hitchcock's Torn Curtain. No. No. Those, those are some of his biggest hits there. and The Long Hot Summer with Elizabeth Taylor. No. We're going to have to pay tribute to Paul Newman soon then get you to watch a couple of his films. Cause, oh, I'm going through his IMDb looking at it right now. I mean, he was in some fantastic stuff along the way. I see he is in the Cars, the movie Cars. Yeah, he was the voice. voice in the cars. He was the voice in it. I think his last on screen was. Well, I thought it was Road to Perdition, but according to IMDb, it would have been Empire Falls. But maybe the last theatrical on screen was Road to Perdition, the last movie he actually did. But, I mean, he's been in some really, really good stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that he was in that I still want to see that I haven't. But he's one that I've tried to go back and watch a lot of what he did, which is what I need to do with Sidney Poitier, too, and watch a bunch of his stuff. Because I've not seen Little Nikita. And I have, I've not seen The Jackal. I've not seen To Sir With Love, either one or two. In the Heat of the Night, or They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Not seen either one of those. I never saw Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So there's a lot of Sidney Poitier stuff that I need to go back and watch as well. And I, like I said, I have seen Sneakers, which love that movie. I would have picked it, but it's not streaming anywhere as part of a subscription. Um, not to change the subject, but I see another Tom Holland movie is getting ready to open up again. Yeah, that Uncharted, I don't have any care. It's based on a video game. With Mark Wahlberg. I wouldn't mind seeing it, because I like action-adventure stuff. But on Paris... So, anyways. On Paris Blues, you had Satchmo, Louis Armstrong... Probably 
recorded the greatest song ever in What a Wonderful World. Nobody can take that away from him. People have tried to remake it. They can't do it. And, of course, Louis Armstrong has shown up in multiple films, including the one that he did the very famous number for, Hello, Dolly. Because you can instantly hear his voice saying, Well, hello, Dolly. Yeah. So, and I have been a fan of Satchmo for a long, long time, and he definitely lit up the screen when he came on. There's no two ways about it. So, again, if you watch Paris Blues, watch it for the performances, watch it for the historical dialogue between Diane Carroll and Sidney Poitier, and watch it to see Louis Armstrong absolutely light up the screen. And it's also, Paris Blues, if you're a jazz lover, you'll really enjoy it. So if, if you're a jazz fan, definitely would like to check this film out as well, because there's a lot of major jazz numbers in it. And of course, legendary Satchmo, who I'm pretty sure actually did perform on the soundtrack, even though, let's see, it's his goose right here, and it's talking about him. When Louis Armstrong and his band come into the club, the patrons are clapping to the wrong beat. The clapping on the pre-recorded soundtrack is on the second and fourth beats, while the patrons are seen clapping on the first and third beats. So I would say that he did actually record the, at least the trumpet part for his performance. And and there there were some some good moments in the film, but like I said, overall it's just it's hard to believe the the story itself. And oh, another thing, it mentions it right at the top of the film too. And this is what I was looking for, but a lot of the music was actually written by Duke Ellington. So, you get, you get Satchmo, you get Duke Ellington. So, again, those are pretty significant moments. And it says, Wild Man Moore uncredited music by Duke Ellington featuring Louis Armstrong on trumpet. So, Satchmo actually did play the trumpet in the movie, as you would have expected. And of course, we've also got to mention some of Diane Carroll's performances, because White Collar was a show that Sid says she's known for, which I didn't even know she was on, but it's a show that I do want to see. She was Julia on the TV series, Julia. Um, let's see if there's anything else here. The Riff Tracks, the Star Wars Holiday Special. Apparently she was in the Star Wars Holiday Special. She was in, looks like, five episodes of Grey's Anatomy, a couple episodes of Soul Food, The Legend of Tarzan TV series in 2001. Oh, that was a voice, so it was an animated show. But she was in an episode of Touched by an Angel, and a Perry Mason mystery, The Case of the Lethal Lifestyle. 
She was in seven episodes of Lonesome Dove, the series. So she's been in some pretty well-known things. She was Marion Gilbert on A Different World, so I'm guessing she was Whitley's mom. She was uncredited for Mo Better Blues as a jazz club singer. She was in The Five Heartbeats, which is a film I've never watched but probably should. 75 episodes of Dynasty. 7 episodes of The Colbys. So, whereas her big screen career didn't take off, she actually hit it pretty good on television, it looks like. Yeah. But did you have anything more you wanted to add on this one? Well, for those wanting to watch it, it is available free with ads on Tubi and Pluto TV. It's it's worth a watch. It's just, it's not what I was expecting going into it. Paul's over there shaking his head. But for for the historical performance of Diane Carroll and, and Sidney Poitier, like I mentioned, hearing them talk about the reason he left the United States and went to France and her saying how things are getting better, you're still having that conversation today. And and some of the things that she said really were very important to be said, like why she was staying instead of leaving. So for that alone, it's worth watching this film, just to hear that conversation. But... Uh, like I said, I was expecting a lot more with these performances, and it wasn't there. I'm going to give it two and a half. And Paul's debating how to nicely put his hate. I can see it on his face there. I enjoyed the music. It was fun. The storyline was meh. 1.75. Oh, Paul just getting right to it. And with that, we'll go to Mandela and the Clerk, which was a Showtime original film. IMDb gives it 7 out of 10. The Tomato Meter has no reviews to give it, but the audience score has a 68%. Paul, you chose this one, so I'm going to let you go with it. story of Nelson Mandela and his um, fight against apartheid and having to end apartheid and working with um, President de, de Klerk um, who stood in front of Parliament and announced the legalization of African and National Congress in the host so um, and also banned other political organizations they kind of like worked together to start the end of um, apartheid. It was actually filmed in South Africa and a lot of the places where it was filmed at, it actually took place there. Um, Mandela and a lot of the buildings there. So they did stay true to the story. They stayed true to everything in this. And there was a lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes um, that I knew nothing about. Um, the, uh, how they were how you know he basically jailed um, Mandela for trying to stand up for people's rights, and he's and then 
everybody started uprising against the government there in South Africa, and they were just telling him, if you'd let him go, if you'd treat him like he's somebody, you know, maybe the American, maybe these people would love you, maybe these people would have respect for you. And that's basically what it boiled down to. And then after 27 years, uh, I think it was 27 years, wasn't it, Chris? Uh, I think it was 28. Political, I think he was in jail for 28 in, years. That he was in uh, in in prison, but he was in prison for years. So um, they ended up letting him out. So, uh, and I remember seeing that on the news when the you know when they freed Mandela. Uh, there was a huge rejoice all around the world when he got to walk out. So I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, uh, Sidney Poitier played a wonderful character. Played he played Nelson Mandela. I really enjoyed seeing Michael Caine as the the clerk. The clerk, excuse me, I keep saying clerk. <laughs> and um, I, re- I really enjoyed. I, 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 it was a very informative movie to me. I was, it was um, seeing how they was treated, but I really that them actually filming it in the places where it happened really impressed me. Well, the the one issue I took with this film was. It almost started out like they assumed you knew everything of the history and they didn't really explain a lot. They just kind of moved quickly because it shows, I mean, it skips the whole trial and shows the verdict for each of the, I believe, seven men, including Nelson Mandela, when they got life sentences for trying to push for democracy in South Africa. And then it skips... Like, I think he'd been in jail for 18 years at the next part. And then it skips again to he was in jail for 26 years, I believe. And so they they skipped quite a bit. And, I mean, I know there was a lot of nothing in that time. But there were also significant events that happened. Like the, the arrest of Winnie Mandela and her having to go into exile that they just talked about, they didn't really delve into. The the boy who was shot and killed, or at least killed, I don't remember he was shot, but she had taken him in as a refuge, and he was killed under her care, and they just kind of talk about that. And these are things that I have no clue about. Like, without having seen them in this movie, I didn't know any of this. And... When it finally gets to the meetings of Mandela and the president and then F.W. de Klerk, who becomes the president, and it's not a spoiler because it's history, but, you know, that's when it starts getting to the meat of the matter and you see a lot more of the story, and that's where it gets good. The problem was, it was a good hour into the film before you started to get to that, and... It was kind of hard to follow for me because I didn't know any of the history. I mean, I knew who Mandela was. I knew that he was arrested for fighting against apartheid. I knew that he was released after a lot of pressure from the world. And something that was very telling in this and explains a lot of history is the, the president who ends up resigning mentioned that if it wasn't for Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, 
he wouldn't have any allies. Yeah, I remember that. And I'm like, that's not a positive thing for either Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. Because the world was against this president. And I can't remember what his name was. Was it Botha? Or Coatsy? I can't remember. I mean, there's... The, the names did not stick with me, but, well, of course, Winnie did, and F.W. DeClerc, and Nelson Mandela, but the others, oh, and the Sergeant Gregory, his name stuck with me, too, but I don't remember who the, the president was. The president of South Africa? Yeah. That F.W. DeClerc would replace, but... He was pretty much unwavering in his political stance and did not want to see the country become a black-ruled country, which was what all of the white men of South Africa seemed to be worried about, was they were going to lose power because the black man was going to take over. But Mandela kept maintaining that he wanted to see no black majority, no white majority, but a government for the people. So that's what they needed to focus on instead of their own hate and criticisms and selfishness and all of that that they were focusing on. And de Klerk comes in and you, you feel more sympathy towards him than the president that was in before him. But... Yeah. He still gives you plenty of reason to not like him. So, yeah, like I said, it, it took some time to get into understanding what was going on in this movie. Because, like I said, I do not know the history. And I've never really known the history of this outside of Mandela was wrongfully imprisoned and the reasons why. And that he was finally released after nearly 30 years in jail. And he ultimately ended up becoming the president of South Africa. Yeah, and the first vote that they had after he was released. Yeah. Which was pretty much a foregone conclusion. The country loved him for the most part. Yeah. And that was one thing they did show in this film was there were a lot of white supporters of Mandela as well. And not just towards the end when the world had turned against South Africa over him, but, like, all alone. And that's one thing that why Sergeant Gregory stuck with me was because he really did try to take care of Mandela in jail. And now, did you notice all the videos that they used of the actual videos with the actual stuff going on in the city and the protests and stuff, that was that was all real. Yeah, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, that was really him on video. And yeah. part of the problem with that was they stretched the video to make it fit the widescreen instead of having it the, the four to three square in the middle. Yeah. I would have preferred the regular, but I know they wanted it to fit the look of the rest of the film, but I don't like it when they stretch out the film because... It changes people's shapes and makes them look weird. But as far as films go, this is a truly definite, important piece of history that people need to learn about. 
That's one reason I was glad you chose it. And for a Black History Month choice, this one is really a good choice. Because it is such a huge part of black history right here. Did you have anything more you wanted to say on it, or did you want to go ahead and rate it? Um, no, it's, it's very informative. Like I said, it really was filmed in South Africa with using real footage of the, um, of the fights and the protests going on. Real footage of it. Um, they tried to make it feel as real as possible, and um, I think they did a great job, um, you know, conveying a lot of the information of what was going on, I mean, in, in the two-hour time slot that it had. So, you want to go ahead and give your rating? I am going to give it a 3.5. Oh, I'm going to say I was very impressed with the accents that they used in this. I don't believe any of them actually spoke like that except for Michael Caine, of course. But they all had the South African accent. And they did. the yeah. little things that Sidney Poitier would say where he would add like an extra vowel, like I'm a Something, something to that effect. Instead of I'm, he go like I'm a, and yeah. so I noticed that, and that one, that was impressive because you didn't think, oh, these are fake accents. You thought they're really speaking the way these actual people spoke. They did a really good job with it. So, as far as that goes, very, very great performances there. The story is very important to be told. The The film looks good. The only issue, like I said, was I don't know the history that well. So a lot of this made no sense for quite a while until they got to the actual dialogue. And that was even rushed. I, I wish they would have either done it in like parts and done the trial and then skipped to where he starts having contact with the public officials and and then actually spend time with the dialogue between them because the first meeting with the president and Mandela was so bad like the you really really hated that president because Mandela is trying to tell him more things that they need to talk about and the president just brushes yeah. him off I've got other things to do I don't have time to talk to you and so you really hate that president at that point, and you really want to see him ousted. And they do get into some dialogue with him and de Klerk, but it, it feels kind of rushed. So it's, they just needed more time and maybe like multiple parts, like do the, the trial and then do the everything with the, the discussions. Almost like a miniseries. Or or two two films. Like a two part miniseries yeah. kind of thing. But it just the way they presented it, you needed a lot more history prior to watching it to get full understanding out of everything. But again, performances were fantastic, very important piece of history here. 
I'm going to give it three and a quarter because the history wasn't there well enough. If you'd have had the history, I'd have probably gone three and three quarters. And with that, I think we are finished this week. I have no clue what we're going to be watching next week, so I cannot Reach even begin it. I don't know if we'll continue to do the Black History Month, because I did see one that I was, when I was scrolling through things today, that I'm interested in watching because I've never seen it, and it would be good for Black History Month, which is The Long Walk Home. So... Let's go ahead and plan on that one next week. Have you ever seen it? No, who's it by? It's Sissy Spacek and Whoopi Goldberg. Okay, well, I'm game. I so, like those two actors. So we'll do The Long Walk Home for next week for sure and continue to celebrate Black History Month, at least in that film. I don't know if we'll pick both Black History Months because Paul will have the other pick and it'll be last minute like always when he decides what he wants to watch. So Hey, I'm a live, I'm a live wire. Well, you're something. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, I know, because I, I don't know if we've ever done The Ghosts of Mississippi, but I know we did Mississippi Burning. Yeah, we did Mississippi Burning, and yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a wealth of, of stuff we can choose for Black History Month, and like I said, I've never seen The Long Walk Home, I really want to see it, and it, if I'm not mistaken, I, I know I'm not mistaken, it was... The, the the bus boycott of the 60s. So it's kind of along the, the time of the help is when the film is set. And the help was another phenomenal film. Made me the a, help was too, yeah. It made me a huge fan of Octavia pie. Spencer. Well, that, that movie made me a fan of Octavia Spencer, and now I absolutely love that woman. And I could, she's another one I could watch read the phone book and enjoy it. But there was something where they were showing a clip from, it was an episode of the Ellen DeGeneres show, the talk show, where Octavia Spencer was on, and it was people getting all excited. And I was like, I remember that clip. It was when Octavia Spencer was on the show... And they were doing the 12 days of giveaways, and she sat in the crowd acting like she was getting some. And <laughs> it's, if you get the chance, find the the 12 days of giveaways clip with Octavia Spencer in it. Because she's just so much fun to watch in it with the joy she feels in it. But it's Octavia Spencer, so how can you not love her? Yeah. Ma and Hidden Figures and the, oh, what was the one where she was dating the creature from the Black Lagoon? Not Octavia, but she was in it. It was just a few years ago. I can't think of the name of it right offhand, but it was an Oscar winner. And so, so definitely the long walk home next week, and then whatever Paul ends up picking. And any final words, Paul? Wear your mask, people. Oh, by the way, I got my free uh, my free COVID test in the mail today that I signed up for. See, I just I chose not to because the the rapid tests are not the most accurate. 
like if I end up needing to get tested I'll go get tested but are coming down it's not over and still need to protect yourself protect those around you and remember Joe Rogan does not know what he's talking about it's the best way to look at it yeah because one thing I do always love is when people say even doctors will say that the information they're giving you is wrong I'm like what doctors name these doctors that are saying it I have spoken with my personal doctor. I've listened to the reports from the, the CDC, the WHO, and Dr. Fauci. And they all seem to fall in line with each other. But miraculously, these doctors out there that disagree with all that, but nobody can name those doctors. Yeah. Was it Dr. Joyce Brothers? Because I don't believe she actually had a PhD. Was it Dr. Ruth? Maybe. <laughs> Alright. But, but anyways, until next week, I think that's it. So, goodbye everybody.